The following is brought to you by TheKnowledge.com, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for, what is it, August? Who the hell let it be August 4th, uh, 2021? It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Busy day, good day to make a political podcast, especially as we are in the content desert on the dark side of the moon as far as the political calendar goes, and yet... Even in a desert, when you look to the heavens, sometimes God will provide. And indeed, news you can use. Follow-ups to threads that we have been dealing with for a long, long, long time. Attorney General of New York State, Letitia James, has issued her long-awaited Report on Andrew Cuomo, the governor's sexual harassment charges, what it says, and the fallout will be discussed. We also have another move. It's a very New York state of mind. Lame duck mayor Bill de Blasio issuing the first Edict for vaccine passports in America. Yes, even in a city as big as New York City, that's a lot of ground to cover. If you're talking about every indoor dining, every gym, every performance space, we're talking from from Broadway to black box theaters, every little improv uh, hole in the wall. You can't be inside enjoying it unless you have your vaccine passport. We go through all of those details. And we are joined by one of our favorite guests to talk about the infrastructure bipartisan negotiations. It looks like this thing is actually going to pass the Senate. But where does it go from there? And what elements are going to factor in to its eventual fate. For that, we talked to one of our favorite people to discuss congressional issues with, Bill Scher of Washington Monthly. But first... The final reckoning has arrived. The Attorney General's report detailing the sexual harassment allegations against Andrew Cuomo have been released, and they find that dude definitely sexually harassed everyone that we know about, and few other instances that we had not specifically heard from. It finds that Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York State, created a toxic 
work culture where aides sat on his lap and kissed him on the lips and yet punished anyone who might fall out of line. And as somebody that you know is only biased toward picking winners and losers, it is my solemn oath and duty to tell you that Andrew Cuomo is going to be reelected for a fourth term as governor of New York State. What? What? There's a bipartisan chorus of lawmakers and media figures to impeach him. Bill de Blasio saying that he needs to be out post haste. He's getting crushed on Twitter. The media, except CNN, is torching him. And I will repeat for you again. Andrew Cuomo is going to be reelected in 2022 to a fourth consecutive term as governor of New York State. Okay, why? Well, I'll tell you. Let's start with the report. Despite carrying a greater air of authority, including testimony and communications from within Cuomo world, quite frankly, we've heard everything in this report before. The lead case is still Charlotte Bennett, who implies that she was being groomed by the newly single Cuomo in the midst of COVID. He probed her for details about her sexual assault, made comments about how he would date somebody two years younger than her, and complained about how lonely he was. It's slimy. It's gross. It's awful. And to ask me personally, I'll tell you, I think it's... True. I think that stuff happened. I think that if she had responded favorably to his advances, she may well be on the road to being Mrs. Cuomo. Or she could be climbing the ladder within the DNC at this point. But I do believe that this is a corrosive environment and it certainly falls within the definition of sexual harassment, at least by the standards that Governor Cuomo signed into law himself not but a few scant years ago. And we heard about all this months ago. And Cuomo survived long enough to give the state weed and gambling, and stimulus, and a state fair in Syracuse. It was his deadbeat dad summer. And by March, he was already over 50% approval rating again. That's not just anything to scoff at. That's while the impeachment sharks were circling him. He was over 50%. On the merits of these allegations, the public looked at them, they thought about them, and then they said, yeah, but I kind of still like them. What's more, this report is civil in nature exclusively, meaning that the attorney general's job is done. 
you might see some kind of charges brought by one of these women, but so far they haven't. And it would seem unlikely at this point, or at least less likely that they would. So where are we to go from here? Tish James was up in front of that podium saying, this is it for me. This is it for the uh, entire investigation. I'll put this bluntly. The 48 hours after this report drops are the worst it will be for Andrew Cuomo. You're going to get all of the withering press accounts. You're going to get the Twitter trending topics. You're going to get somebody moralizing on television. Oh, you can imagine Keith Olbermann practicing in his own mirror. Sir, you are a disgrace, sir. Resign, sir. He says while his cat gets frightened and runs to the other room. But again, Cuomo weathered a possibly more brutal version of this storm when all this information was new and coming to light. Now, all he has to do is follow that same playbook and stick to his guns even more forcefully than he did before. In fact, it's exactly what he's already done. When he released a statement about all these charges, all he had to do was say, I did nothing wrong. Most pointedly, he addressed a picture that got a lot of press circulation months ago where he had both of his hands on the face of a woman who in the moment looked uncomfortable by his advances. As he discusses how many people's faces he touches in an affectionate way on a weekly basis, Regardless of sex, regardless of age, regardless of religion or sexual orientation, dozens of pictures of him doing just that flashed on the screen. Does that remove the ability for a Cuomo face touch to carry a sexual undertone? Of course it doesn't. But it does lead me to my final point. Outside of Twitter, Outside of progressive media, the argument that touching people in an affectionate way is grounds for termination is terrifying to some. It's PC culture run amok. Now, among that group, are there fossilized Don Draper types who long for a day when they could pinch the waitress's ass with impunity? Sure. But there are also people who've lived their lives in environments where human contact was encouraged and are uncomfortable with the speed of the shifting scale on this issue. In my opinion, it's a lot of internalized embarrassment that somebody didn't realize they were doing wrong and now are afraid that they're going to have to suffer consequences for it. And that's before we get into any kind of actual PC culture warriors who want to fight about literally anything and touching people's faces will do just nicely. Let me reset here. I believe that Governor Andrew Cuomo created a toxic environment and tried to groom young professional women into sexual relationships. But if this report 
and I do believe it does, allows him to couch his defense as, hey, I touch everyone's face. I'm walking here. Then he's already rebounded. And since I do believe that is the case, that means he's the odds-on favorite to get elected again in a state without term limits. Now, if, let's say, the investigation was not about sexual harassment, but maybe about the decision to put COVID patients in nursing homes and then having your staff orchestrate a cover-up to say that you didn't do it, that might carry more weight going forward. And if that becomes more of an issue as we get closer to the Democratic primary for the governorship in which Letitia James may well be a competitor to Andrew Cuomo, well, I think we might have a little something more to cook with. But as of right now, I know who I'm betting on. Let's stick in New York. Hey, I'm in New York. I got a gun. Let's go to a Broadway show. But make sure you're vaccinated, Wayne and Garth, because that's now the law in de Blasio's NYC. De Blasio is a lame duck, and yet he announces today that in an effort to spur vaccination rates, vaccination rates that are not bad in New York City, 66% is fully vaccinated. That is above the national average. And they're above 70% vaccinated for people with one shot. We are approaching what we used to think of as being herd immunity in New York. Although some neighborhoods are more vaccinated than others. There are pockets where people are not. So, Does the idea of restricting them from going into restaurants, gyms, and performance spaces make those people want to vaccinate? What de Blasio is pointing to is the fact that in France, a vaccine passport system was put in, and that did spur people's vax rates. Now, I think and this is just a guess, that the majority of people who would be spurred into vaccinations based on a law like this are people who were gonna do it, but maybe they're a little scared of needles. Maybe they just needed to get around to it. A blah, a blah, a blah. I don't know what it's gonna do for New York City. I am surprised that New York City is the first to do it because... I think, quite frankly, that my old stomping grounds out in the Bay Area would have been. I am shocked that San Francisco got beat on doing vaccine passports. I mean, come on. How can they possibly? They were the ones that, 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 that rushed into lockdowns earlier. But let's talk about lockdowns. Let's talk about exactly how punitive government can and will get 
with these Delta figures continuing to rise. I don't think lockdowns are off the table. I honestly don't. Because a lot of these decisions are being made by fear. A lot of these decisions, specifically from Democratic politicians, are being made because they cannot be seen as turning their back on caring about this disease. If you lock down, then you must be very dialed into it. That's the brand, right? Now, I don't think that we're going to see, well, I hope we don't see the same kind of lockdowns that we saw last year. But, you know, let's say we have these vaccine passports. And let's say maybe not even the Delta variant, but but the Lambda variant. And when that comes calling in, in the wintertime, could I see the idea of shutting down indoor venues altogether? I mean, I don't know. It, it seems far-fetched to me, but I don't think it's off the table. Let's get back to the here and now, though. With New York City doing this, do you see other cities putting this into motion? Well, you know, New York is going to begin this uh, uh, this month in August. They're going to start enforcing it in mid-September. But great googly moogly, that's a lot of enforcement area. Again, we're talking about every bar, every restaurant, every performance space, every gym. You know, how are they going to do this? Do, do they just have a, I mean, I, there's going to be a, a city-run uh, vaccine passport system called Key to New York City where maybe you got to scan in with it and then the cops can just kind of come in and take a head count and you better hope that your head count that is currently registered on the app will be registered or the, the head count inside. But is that where you want police enforcement? You know, especially considering the fact that like, you know, we just had this whole summer of riots because of police interactions, specifically with the black community. I don't know if you've taken a look at the uh, uh, vaccination rates amongst blacks and Hispanics, but it's less than those of their white fellow Americans. So you're incentivizing cops to go into places in black neighborhoods and check their vaccine passport stuff? <sighs> I don't know. I, I know on Twitter that vaccine passports are something that are, are, are lauded, but I, I do think that they're more complicated than we give them credit for. I'm curious to see whether or not it actually goes forward in New York. Uh, I'm curious to see if it's adopted in other cities. I would imagine the Bay Area and Los Angeles would be on the short list. Maybe Chicago. But it will certainly be something that will be fought tooth and nail by Republican governors in states like Texas and Florida. Even as they see their Delta cases continue to rise. Oh, 
baby, I got nothing but good news for you guys. Nothing but good news for you guys in this particular segment, which is normally advertising. But now, oh, it's just going to be the good news segment. Y'all ready for some good news? Been sleeping on me, huh? Had a good snooze? Well, wake up, listeners. Wake up. Number one, if you are in the Nashville area, August 5th, that is this Thursday, tomorrow, if you are listening to this on the day that it is dropped, 5 p.m. at the Scoreboard Bar and Grill in the Opryland area of Nashville, Tennessee, myself, Jen Briney, Andrew Heaton, we will all be outdoors We will all be hanging out. We will all be having a good time. I hope to see you guys. It's going to be great if you're at the Podcast Movement Convention. uh, It's right in that same area, so come on out. If you're in Tennessee, come on out. It's going to be a good time no matter what. Please come see us. That, again, is Thursday, August 5th at 5 p.m. Scoreboard Bar and Grill in the Opryland area of Nashville. Now, you think that that might be just the good news, huh? You think that might be just the good news? No, more good news for everybody that supports us, for everybody that's gone to takepoliticsseriously.com. If you signed up at the $3 level and you get those two bonus podcasts each and every week, you get the Monday show. That's our review of all the Sunday chat shows, our Sunday, Sunday, Sunday podcast. You've gotten our Thursday show, our late edition, which by the way, was the podcast last week that broke down all the details on the infrastructure deal. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome to everybody that supports us because I have delivered where Congress has dithered. Yes. While they bicker and fight amongst whether or not Stimulus should be given in the form of a child tax credit. I have delivered stimulus in the form of podcaster Patreon supporter credit. Yes. I only charged you guys for three of the four weeks last month. Now I know what some of you are saying. Justin, was that a mistake that you are now trying to rebrand as a gift? And I would say... Pay no attention to that question. It is totally immaterial. The result is y'all get to keep a little bit more money in your pocket. You're welcome. Thank you for supporting this show. If you would like to join their ranks, if you would like to become a patron and sometimes be the beneficiary of either my largesse or the fact that there was a lot going on in the last few weeks and I totally forgot to charge for one week. You can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. On Sunday, the impossible happened. Text of the bipartisan infrastructure package was released and it looks like it's got the votes. The hope from both Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer is that it can pass within the next seven days. But what happens after that is now what we have our eyes on. And so we bring in someone to talk about it with. 
Our guest is always one of my favorite minds to pick when it comes to Congress. He's a writer for Washington Monthly and a frequent guest on this podcast, Bill Share. Welcome to the show, Bill. Great to be back. Great to talk to you, as always. I, I have uh, given you a lot of credit, and, and, and it might even be premature, because the thing that I think you predicted the last time that we were on the show... Uh, has has yet to happen, but I think is on the pathway to happen. And and that is bipartisan infrastructure has passed. The reconciliation or, or will pass, hopefully, in the Senate this week. Uh, pass uh, the test votes, the pass, procedural votes. Pass the test votes, the procedural votes, the, the amendments. I'll put it this way. If Mitch McConnell is at this point supporting it, then it is likely it will get through the Senate unless, I mean, unless something else happens. You know, things, things can happen. We're not totally, you know, you're we're not, not done until you're we're done not through. But when that happens, we have already seen the war drums begin to beat from the progressives in the house. And it now puts Nancy Pelosi in the position of exactly how about this? We are not going to vote on the bipartisan bill life she wants to be. So before I've already gone, you know, a four steps ahead here because I think that's what we like to do. But uh, from from your perspective, where is infrastructure right now and where is it likely to go? Well, I think it's in a, I think it's in a good place. And just to be fair about my past assessments, I don't think I ever said, you know, it's a slam dunk. It's going to pass. You know, go no, go on to no. go on to predict it and bet all your money on it. No, I think I I think I said on your show and another show I, I gave it a 60, 60 to seventy percent odds of passing, um, which is probably uh, higher than most any other pundit was saying. Sure, sure. I, I don't I don't think that you had a high prediction of it necessarily making it out of the Senate. I think what I wound up zeroing in on was if it comes out of the Senate, then Pelosi has a history of saying. This will will not pass the House unless these certain criteria are met. And then eventually, when when it comes down to it, like she did with Obamacare, she takes the lesser deal and moves it through the House because a wins, a wins, a wins, a wins, a win, no matter how much you want it to be perfect. The Pelosi history is to maintain good credibility with the left flank for as long as possible but always be very mindful of the needs of her vulnerable moderates. Yeah. And, and some people are presuming, and look, I'm not a mind reader. So, you know, Pelosi yeah, is going to sure. do what she's going to do. Uh, all I can tell you is it's not unusual for her to be talking tough now. Yeah. Uh, so she gives the appearance of having fought the good fight. Yeah. But Presuming this does pass the Senate, which it looks like it will shortly, there's going to be a drumbeat. You're already starting to hear it from those vulnerable moderates. Hey, this deal is this this is this is baked. Yeah, this is a we can pass this now and start delivering the goods to our constituencies. Uh, there's no point sitting on this and waiting for the 3.5 trillion, whatever it's going to be. Reconciliation bill, and just to get down to the weeds again, yeah, yeah. reconciliation is a filibuster-proof procedure. It's limited to budgetary matters. Uh, Democrats want to get more than just what's in the bipartisan bill. Uh, but Biden, ha- after his initial gaffe, has managed to de-link it. Yes. Uh, 
Republicans have accepted his delinkage. Yep. Uh, then the question is, is Pelosi going to force a relinkage? Yes. As uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives are demanding that she do. Uh, and if this is baked, if the bipartisan bill is baked, and there isn't even an agreement on what's going reconciliation, no, 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 which, no, there no, is, no. which is not there, right there now. Is, there is not an agreement, Bill. In <laughs> fact, there is active and acrimonious disagreement on, <laughs> right. on what, uh, uh, within the Democratic Party, on what this bill is going to look like. You have AOC taking shots at Kirsten Cinema on <laughs> Twitter, saying that she's tanking her own party. You have Joe Manchin out uh, uh, doing his Joe Manchin dance on, like, well, you know, if everything in the $3.5 trillion bill is paid for, I'm for it, which it obviously is is we got a, a long way to go from here to there on on exactly how three point five trillion dollars uh, appears, but uh, even he wouldn't give an inch on some of the environmental things because that part of that reconciliation bill has Green New Deal elements to it. So it's like there there is right now a gigantic gulf, and that's my big question is for Biden and then vis a vis Pelosi like. They know that this kind of deal doesn't come around very often. The, every major president has tried to do a big bipartisan thing. None of them have succeeded. This looks like it's got a decent chance to do it. My question to you is, do the progressives have the juice, as AOC says they do, to totally logjam this in, in the House? So AOC was on CNN this Sunday saying she had the numbers in the progressive caucus to prevent the bill from passing. She can't know that. We can't know that because she was basically talking as if the the vote in the House was, was going to be party line. Strict the, party line, yeah. Because there's only, a th- I think as it stands, because there's a couple of vacancies, I think. I three think votes. Can lose yeah. Three. yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure AOC has got more than three votes willing to walk from this deal. She 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 said double digits on CNN State of the right, Union this week. Right, and, you know when someone uses the term double digits, that means they're not they, they don't want to tell you what the exact number is. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that is probably on the low end of double digits and not the high end of double digits. Yeah, we don't know how many House Republicans will vote for this bill. Yeah, and so AOC does not know how many votes she needs if she actually wanted to block it. Now, there is a problem solvers caucus. That's a bipartisan caucus within the House. There are 29 Republicans in that caucus. And they they pr- proposed their own bipartisan compromise earlier in this process, which is roughly similar to what we're actually voting on. So yeah. I would I would think you're going to get at least 29 and could well be more than that. And if, frankly, the more upset AOC is, the more they're likely to support it. Could vote for it. Um, so Pelosi has said, forgive me if I'm not giving you the exact quote. Go ahead. You count the vote and then you take the vote. Yeah. If she has the votes, if she's counting and knows that she has enough Republican votes to offset any loss on the progressive side, I would think she would take the vote and bank that win. Because as grouchy as the progressive flank might get for her doing that, they're not going to sink 
the reconciliation bill afterwards. No. They're not going to shoot themselves in the foot after that. So what is the cost for Pelosi to do that? The only reason why we're having this dance at all is because there's a lack of trust yeah. that that the moderates will do the second step. Yes. Uh, and and again, we don't know how high the moderates are going to go. Cinema has already said not 3.5 trillion. Yeah. <laughs> um, now maybe it's 3.4 trillion. Maybe it's 2.5 trillion. I don't know what the number is. No yeah. one knows what the number is. But there's already some indication that there is that there is an upper bound on the moderate side. That's not going to be exactly what AOC likes. But once you're at that point, assuming bipartisan bills already passed, the debate is over something over nothing. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think progressives would be in a great position to take nothing. Well, I, I don't think so either. The question is whether or not they can coexist with the moderates to get a deal done. You know, that 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 to me is the big question. And and then on, on the other side, how much does Biden lean on this entire process? Because this is legacy history making for him. I mean, as a creature of the Senate, the guy who gets infrastructure done, that's something that I think he would very much value on his resume as president. Look, he would value it. There are other Democrats who are going to say, I need this. I need this win. I mean, mean, we have a midterm coming up. Yes. We have vulnerable Democrats who are generally in the purple areas, not in the blue areas. Yeah. They're going to be clamoring, saying, "I need this." Yeah. I, if we're if we're going to serve, if we're going to, do, I mean, look, it's very hard for the president's party to win seats in the midterm. It can happen, but it's very rare. Rare. Uh, they're going to be saying, "I need this to buck history here. We can't be, you know, dragging our feet." Uh, and I think Biden also knows. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that we're not getting rid of the filibuster. No. <laughs> you know, uh, if he he's going to want to pass other bills after this one. Yeah. He wants to break that ice. He wants to build that trust so he can get the 60 on something else after reconciliation passes. So there's incentive to do it. Uh, again, again, I can't can't be a mind reader. Uh, Biden will make his own decisions. But I would think if you're at that point, he would pick up the phone and he would call if he needed the votes. I mean, maybe, maybe there are enough Republicans that he doesn't have to do it. But to the extent that he does, he would pick up that phone and say, I need this. My presidency is on the line. My presidency yeah. is assisted. I mean, that's that's what Bill Clinton did in 1993 when he wanted to raise taxes. They were like, he needed, he needed two more votes. He called two wavering Democrats and said, my presidency is at stake. That, you know, certain people can resist that. You know, yes. maybe maybe an AOC can resist that because she wants to make a point. Because that's maybe Joe brand. Man- yeah. Right. Maybe Joe Manchin can resist that because he's in West Virginia and Joe Biden has no juice there. Yeah. But for a lot of Democrats... That is a powerful thing for a president to say to you. Now, let's go back to those vulnerable Democrats and especially looking at this midterms and looking at how things will go from here. Uh, Is there a cost to doing the bipartisan deal, but then following it up with something as massive as and let's let's even put it lower than three trillion. Let's put it at two point five trillion or something that's roughly twice what the the agreed upon for the bipartisan deal was. Does that hurt them? And in, in a lot of ways, is this 
founded the fears of the progressives that, yeah, they're going to get what they want in this bipartisan win that they can parade around and say, look, Washington works. Democracy works. We're, we're, we're back to actually doing things that are good for the country under Joe Biden. Uh, uh, but then this other gigantic thing, uh, maybe that's not so popular with my purple constituency. Maybe not. Well, I think there's some unknowns there. Uh, you know, I have a piece in the queue at the Washington Monthly about the child tax credit. Child yeah. tax credit is was an expanded child tax credit was put in the American Rescue Plan, yeah. which was the first reconciliation bill that passed in the Biden presidency, largely about pandemic relief. Uh, and the, the child tax credit, which was 2000 bucks a kid for the year and with a bit narrow eligibility, the Biden version jacks up to 3000 for kids over six and 3600 for kids under six. And it makes it near universal. Yeah. And it tweaks the, the default way to get it, which is not just claiming it on your tax return, but getting the money fronted in yeah. monthly checks. Those checks, the first ones were cut last month. And the Democrats have been selling this as a legacy achievement, that this is going to transform our anti-poverty uh, strategy. Yeah, uh, the Urban Institute just put out a, a report saying this was this could cut poverty by itself, but cut child poverty by forty percent. Uh, but they only did it in the rescue plan for the year for this tax year. Yeah, so they got to pass something else. If it's going to be a historical achievement, it's going to be yeah. a legacy. It's got to last beyond this a year. year. Yeah, this is an expensive program. This is a hundred billion dollars a year through twenty twenty five. And the cost actually gets jacked up to close to $200 billion a year, like 190, because Trump raised the tax credit on his watch yep. and put a sunset on it. So it, it, gotcha. that expires after 2025. So if you want to keep the level it's at now, you got to spend more money to keep in, it up Yeah, in the next five years. So if you were to literally have a permanent extension of it in this reconciliation bill, you're talking $1.6 trillion. This just, is a three for, point, just for the child tax credit. Just for that. And if your cap is $3.5 trillion, and, it, and maybe be lower than that, you're talking about half the bill. Yes. I and mean, there's yes. a whole lot of things that the Democrats want to do. So that's almost surely not going to happen. Yeah. But they could extend it for a year, two years, three years, four years, and try to embed it yes. so it's hard to hard get to rid of. Away. And you're, you're effectively saying this is going to last uh, indefinitely. Uh, why wouldn't my, that be hard? Well, number one, the moderates are saying at minimum, you got to pay for it. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't paid for in the rescue plan. There wasn't a tax increase or a spending cut to offset it. They want that now. And as I said, it's an expensive program. So there's, there, there, there's a challenge there. Uh, another thing that's cropped up recently that I don't think Democrats were expecting is it's not polling. Well, Democrats have huh. assumed that, you know, free money, it's going to pull well. If you make these plans universal, it's not a poor person's program. Yep. Yep. We all get it. You, you, you won't feel like it's unfair or you're, you're, so it's picking your pocket in order to get it. Uh, now, what I think is happening, and I can't, I can't know for absolute sure, um, a few things. One is not everybody is a school-age parent, school, a parent of a school-age child. Yeah. So it doesn't go to everybody. It goes to almost every parent, but we're not all you know parents of school age kids. Yeah. So not everyone, not, not everyone's feeling it. Number one, uh, 
And number two, it, it was never sold when it passed as a historical achievement. It was really sold at all. It was slipped in. Yeah. Uh, and so no one's really, the public has really bought into it. The polling shows that people do support the child tax credit for this year. Yeah. They just don't support it for it being permanent. So it's yeah. probably, it's, it's like mid fifties for this year. And it's like, you know, low to mid thirties permanently. Yeah. So I think a lot of Democrats thought, Hey, we're in a crisis. Let's crisis is opportunity. Let's use this as the opportunity to show how a real robust anti-poverty program could work. Forget all these conditions and, and paperwork and eligibility. Let's just give people money and it's going to work. Yeah. And the studies show that it does work. We have slashed poverty by nearly half in this year alone. Yeah. But it may be that a lot of voters don't care because they're yeah. selfish. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, they are, they got it when we were in economic lockdown, they don't get it as a permanent program, at least not yet. Well, let me ask so you. So there needs, yeah. needs to be a sell job to say, hey, it's it makes sense broadly. It makes sense for the entire economy, whether you're a parent or not. It helps us to to give out this money. That sell job has not occurred yet. Let me ask you a question. And and I will point out to everybody that is listening that either Bill or I are trained economists. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are, however, people who keenly watch the political landscape and understand what has traction and what doesn't, at least with the mouthpieces of the legislatures and, and the talking heads beyond that. Over the last three months, I have heard more instances of the word inflation than I have the previous of. Uh, uh, However long I've been politically cognizant, like it used to almost specifically be the domain of either uh, libertarian folks, super like like, like fiscally minded economic uh, political folks or right wing media every once in a while. Like now this is something that seems to be on the lips of, of more and more mainstream sources. Do you get the sense that let's let's roll this forward the year and change, uh, you know, for us to get to the midterms? Is this going to be a thing where where politically it has clout to say, no, we can't do this program because inflation. And look, you can see it in the price of lumber, milk and chicken wings. Well, as I'm not an economist, I can't say with certainty yes or no. Yeah, I I do think. When we're close to the vote, yeah, when we're close to a final vote on reconciliation, which is you know, what's going to happen now this month, August, is the budget resolution. Yes. Again, to get down the parliamentary weeds again, the way budget reconciliation works, if you want a shortcut and not have to deal with that filibuster problem, yes, you have to go through this other rigmarole, which is you pass a budget resolution. A budget resolution is not a law. It does not go to the president, but it's a, it's a guideline of what the appropriation committees uh, should do. And, it, and if you include reconciliation instructions in those guidelines, then you can pass a reconciliation bill. Uh, so there's a process of then drafting the reconciliation bill after the resolution is passed. That's gonna be several weeks. That's we're gonna be pushed into the fall, maybe even into the winter. Um, where is inflation at that point? I don't know, you don't yeah. know, the Fed no doesn't know, knows. the president doesn't know. Uh, but 
you know, you're, you're, you're a younger whippersnapper. Now I'm an, I'm an old man. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties. You know, I mean, not that I was like a super duper nerd. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was nerdish, but not like, sure. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't reading, you know, economic briefing papers, but like inflation was kind of thing, was just in the air all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's like you, 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 you would ask your mom and dad, you know, what's inflation? Because it would, you, you just heard it on people's lips. Uh, and we hadn't had serious inflation in such a long time. It seems like a weird boogeyman. And it might be a weird boogeyman. You know, we have, we have some inflation right now, but the Biden White House and the Fed chief have said, oh, this is just a temporary thing coming out of the pandemic lockdown. Uh, maybe it is. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying it's going to be a thing. But, you know, sometimes people are wrong. So if it, it, it may be that if inflation is kicking up in October, it's still kind of temporary. And the Fed might still say, you know what, we're not going to have this in January. But if you're feeling it, if you're feeling it over the course of three or four months, it's not going to feel temporary. And that might make a moderate pause. And, and to be uh, fair here, if you are paying for it. Yeah. If you are raising taxes along with the spending, that is not inflationary under you know normal Keynesian logic yeah. because you're you're offsetting the it's it's when it's deficit spending that's inflationary. But you will still see people disingenuously argue that you've thrown all this money into the system, you've put too much into the pipeline, and you've eroded the value of these checks. So it's a yeah. pyrrhic victory that you've done this. You haven't done this thoughtfully, uh, and whether the Democratic moderates push back and then say, hey, maybe we did overshoot before, but we're paying for it now. So this shouldn't be inflationary. Or they're going to say, look, everyone's all in a froth about inflation. This is not the right time. Uh, it still like, would be a factor in the debate more so than it was if it's still roaring come the fall of the winter. That's my only my only question is exactly how much utility the term inflation has. Because it seems like it has more now. Obviously, the actual facts on the ground will play a role in it. But we both know that sometimes these kind of uh, uh, elements, if you feel like you're paying more at the pump or you or, or you feel like you are paying more for groceries, then that can often be something that can motivate voters. That it can become its own narrative in the media and therefore can guide politicians' hands. I, I want to pivot for a second, though, and, and move to the COVID question of this, because uh, not only has COVID actually affected the way that this is uh, matriculating through the Senate, as uh, Lindsey Graham uh, tested positive and apparently he was hanging out on Joe uh, Manchin's houseboat. So now there's a question on exactly when everybody would be able to get into the chamber to vote on this, even if they absolutely have the votes. But also, let's assume that we are not at the peak of this Delta variant. and, And indeed, we are we are in for another month and a half of maybe some controversial elements. Uh, uh, New York City just put in vaccine passports. Uh, uh, maybe we see a return to lockdowns or more enhanced mask mandates. Uh, how does that affect? Let's let, let's assume the bipartisan bill goes through. How does that affect the politics of a purely partisan uh, reconciliation bill? Well, again, People were very tolerant of expansive fiscal policies when you were in lockdown. Yeah. Even Republicans, you know, I, I, think, Stu, I think McConnell at one point said, this is not a stimulus, this is relief. This is different than mm-hmm. the Obama bill. You know, the government has taken an action to shut everything down. 
And so it has a responsibility to keep to you alive yeah. <laughs> during that process. Uh, now, if we're moving towards more mass mandates because the Delta variant, I would assume we're not taking a step beyond that and going back into lockdowns. That's a bold assumption, Bill. <laughs> well, I say that because most people are vaccinated. Yeah. The vaccines are available. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you don't get vaccinated in, in a large sense, it's it's on you. You have, you have made the irresponsible choice. That's not the government's fault. That's your fault. Uh, and if those who are vaccinated still get it, well, they're, at least they're vaccinated and they're not going to die. And they're probably not going to be in the hospital. I, I, I also, I mean, look, I'm on your side. I totally agree with you. Uh, well, well, that's uh, my opinion. I, I, just, I don't think the government's going to take that drastic step I, I because also, of those factors. I, I also would have thought that New York City, which has a fairly high vaccination rate, it's like uh, up above 70 for, for one shot. It's like 66 for fully vaccinated. I wouldn't think that they would go to vaccine passports. And that happened this morning, you know, and maybe well, that's, but, but, maybe but that's, that's de Blasio. That's different than lockdown. It is different than lockdown, but it is a step beyond where I thought they would go. And 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 you never know, right? I mean, we are seeing breakthrough cases more and more. Now, granted, they are not nearly as severe uh, uh, as as they should be. Like the vaccines work, right? That mm-hmm. that is the top line. I don't want anybody to take anything out of this conversation that doesn't begin and end with the vaccines work. That being said. I do think there is a conversation about where the government responsibility is. And considering Biden is the COVID president, he was he's in the White House because he took COVID more seriously than Trump. At least that was on the minds of people in last November. I I wonder. I I, I just I, I just I, I think that this is a little bit more fluid than we might have thought because the Delta variant is something that is becoming is looming larger uh, especially in, in 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 the political world than I think we would have expected. Well, I would not be surprised if we have more very tough debates about vaccine passports yeah. because of this. Uh, and to the extent that the federal government gets involved in that, that's a very controversial subject. And uh, whether it's the right or wrong thing to do um, is a separate matter. Yeah. Uh, but if Biden did take that step, let's just hypothetically, if Biden took that step and pushed it, leaned into it in some way, and people didn't like it, does that lower his approval rating? If that lowers his approval rating, does that lower his political capital to get through reconciliation yep. if, it's a, if it's a close vote? So there might be impacts that way. I don't think it's going to make broad-based fiscal policy easier Yes, because I don't think we're going to be in full-blown economic lockdown again. Yeah. Uh, so to the extent that people's, you know, you know, people are, don't are not intellectually consistent. No, <laughs> they don't necessarily have fully formed political thoughts, but there's a part of them that has a desire for goodies and a part of them that gets worried about spending too much uh, to the extent that that fiscal scold side of people started to kick up more mm-hmm. after a year of very expansive fiscal policy. I don't know if that gets I don't think that gets uh, abated because you're having a, a controversial debate over vaccine passports. Yeah. Uh, all right. One last thing, uh, and then we'll get you out of here. Uh, we touched on it earlier in the podcast, the idea of the eviction moratorium. This is definitely a wedge within the the Democratic uh, uh, caucus there in, in the House and, and really Democratic power throughout the Senate and the White House. 
AOC and Representative Cory Bush, uh, freshman lawmaker there, have been very, very, very uh, uh, eager to point out that it is the Biden White House's problem that they foisted the demand to fix this in the House uh, at the last minute, despite the fact that they knew the eviction moratorium was coming up. Representative Bush has been uh, living outside of the Capitol as a protest uh, to be unhoused as the eviction moratorium expired on July 31st. When we're talking about all the Democrats having to come together to have some kind of kumbaya moment, especially when it comes to reconciliation, and now you have an issue that the Democrats will say, okay, you want my vote, then we got to include stuff like extending the eviction moratorium in whatever legislation that you want me to vote for. Is that something that you think can change the dynamics of either the bipartisan or the reconciliation package? I mean, I would think that if you try to woo the reluctant progressives to vote for the bipartisan bill with an eviction moratorium extension, you'd probably lose Republicans yeah. and maybe some Democratic moderates. And I'm also not convinced that they need those progressive votes yet. They may, they may, already, they may have the votes without them and therefore yeah. don't need to, to go and get involved in that kind of horse trading. Um, but this is an issue that's clearly causing intra-party tension amongst Democrats because you have a progressive side that is very attuned to the needs of uh, the poor and vulnerable renters. But it's clear there's some faction of moderates that are also hearing from landlords. Yeah. Uh, and you're trying to see the Biden White House thread that needle by saying, look, we don't have the unilateral power to extend this moratorium because the Supreme Court just weighed in on this and said that we don't. Yeah. Uh, so I could do it, but I'm going to lose in court in short order. Yes. Uh, although, although, for the record, that is what Cory Bush is asking for. Even if you know that you're going to get it voted down, give us the time to 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 work. Yes. They they just want to fight and fight and fight to the bitter end, and the Biden White House is not in this on the same page on that. Yeah. Um, what the White House is saying is. We have a pool of money designated for renter aid that a lot of state governments have not doled out yet. And now's the time to lean into that because if they get that aid, that money gets paid to the landlords. Yeah. So in theory, everybody wins. Yeah. Uh, so that's what they're trying to do. I'm, I'm not saying this is going to successfully thread the needle politically yeah. Um, because we don't know how well these programs are going to work and the money is going to get to where they need to go. How many people are going to get, I mean, it, it probably isn't going to solve everybody's uh, problem. Uh, and uh, this may just be one of those things that just causes stress in the democratic coalition. Uh, and, you know, and this is why, mind you, that Democrat, that, that, the president's party usually does not do well in midterms because yes. you're governing, you have trade-offs, you can't make everybody in your coalition happy. Someone gets mad and they don't, they don't show up, you know, yeah. two years later. Uh, and this may be one of those issues that is just going to leave a mark on the Democratic Party uh, in this period. Well, we will have to wait and see, but always a, an, an illuminating perspective from Bill Share. Thank you so much, man. Uh, is there anything that we should be on the lookout uh, uh, for you writing-wise? Uh, well, that, that piece uh, should be coming up in the monthly, um, why the child tax credit's not selling itself. Uh, mm -hmm. I would expect that to go up later on this week. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Politics, politics, politics.
Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to say thank you to Bill Scher for coming on the program, you can do so at px3guest.com. If you want to email us, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And by the way, based on volume of email alone, I was tempted to make Brian Sack my permanent co-host on this show. Holy crap, you guys had a lot of thoughts about the Brian Sack interview. Uh, here's, here's, here's what I'll say in, in summary of it, and I wrote back to a lot of you guys directly. That was an interview that I do think is an important piece of the puzzle, uh, mostly because Brian is an angry dad, and, and I do think that angry parents are a part of any kind of educational issue, and you need to at least understand where they're coming from even if you intellectually disagree with them. That being said, I will admit that in my initial thought about how to use that interview, I was going to make it a little bit more produced. I was going to walk through some of the press accounts and comb through the whistleblower teachers uh, stuff a little bit more and then pepper it in with Brian's comments. Uh, life got in the way. I had to leave town on an emergency. And so the uh, interview got ran the way it did. I did listen to it before I ran it. I'm happy that we ran it. But I did just want to give a little uh, shout out to everybody who wrote back. Which, by the way, it wasn't all negative. Uh, there were some people that were extraordinarily positive about it. So polarizing. But I hope you guys enjoyed it all the same. If you would like to send us a tweet... It is PX3 Tweets. If you would like to watch us live, it is px3live.com. If you want to share this podcast, it's PX3 Podcast. And if you would like to get some merch of the show, it is politicsmerch.com. You can support me. Little forgetful old me. Old stimulus germs. Uh, PayPal.me slash jury. Uh, at Venmo, Justin-Young-20, and on Cash App at PX3Cash. If you want to send me something physical, you can do so. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss out on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, The Other Half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mag, Zombie Doc, D, Really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle Age Mike.com, Junkie, Calamity Zap, D Laser, Lord Scale, The Kinsey, Anile the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, David Snuffies, Off Route 44. Charles, Olin and Angela, DL, persons familiar with the matter, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? And every once in a while, get a free week. 
<laughs> you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That'll wrap us up for this week. Next episode, live from Podcast Movement, the first ever in-person political triad, Young Keaton Briney. PX3, Political Orphanage, Congressional Dish. We Voltron up like we have never done before. It's going to be a great time. An episode you don't want to miss. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Politics. Politics.